World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For decades, a debate has raged about returning cultural artifacts to the lands they were plundered from. A generation steeped in that debate has risen through the ranks of museums, and now it's curators themselves leading the push for restitution. And President Donald Trump often claims that social media platforms suppress conservative voices. So our data team probed Twitter's algorithm by cloning Mr. Trump's account. For him, anyway, far from quieting the right, Twitter makes it louder. First up, though. Viva Mexico! Viva Mexico! Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, commonly known as AMLO, swept to power in 2018 promising not just to reduce, but to wipe out corruption. The left-wing populist had surfed a wave of anger against the government of his predecessor, Enrique Peña Nieto, commonly accused of being the most corrupt administration in the country's history. But Emilio Lozoya, one of the targets of the subsequent graft investigation, was extradited from Spain in July. Last week, he flipped the script, making his own allegations of corruption. His testimony in a leaked deposition has rocked Mexico, accusing dozens of politicians, including former President Peña, of bribery involving millions of dollars, the kinds of allegations that Mr. Peña has denied in the past. In terms of the people accused here, we are talking about the biggest corruption scandal in Mexican history. And the man who has set this scandal in motion is Emilio Lasoya. Richard Enzer is our Mexico City bureau chief. Emilio Lasoya was on the team of Enrique Peña Nieto, Mexico's previous president, during his 2012 election campaign. He then went on to become the boss of Pemex, Mexico's state-owned oil company. And... Rumors have long swelled that Mr. Lozoya was involved in acts of bribery during the campaign, and a warrant for his arrest was issued last year. En este coche, la policía ha trasladado hasta la comisaría de Málaga a Emilio Lozoya, el exdirector de Pemex, la compañía estatal. But it was only in July of this year that he returned to Mexico from Spain to face Mexican authorities, and when he did so, he did something extremely dramatic. Rather than just pleading guilty or not guilty to what he was accused of, he turned around and asked for whistleblower protection in exchange for implicating dozens of members of Mexico's political class. So what exactly is he alleging now? 
So he claims to have received $4 million in bribery money from Odebrecht, which is a Brazilian construction firm accused of bribing pretty much every single government in Latin America in recent years. He also claims to have been involved in the bribing of Mexican senators to ensure the passage of energy reforms that Mr. Peña was proposing. And he claims that the architects of all of this bribery was the Mexican president, Mr. Peña, as well as Luis Videgaray, the finance minister at the time. According to Mr. Lasoya's version of events, his reward for this was promotion to a job in charge of Pemex, where he there saw and conducted even more corruption still. Of course, virtually all of those accused by Mr. Lasoya, including Mr. Videgaray, vehemently deny these accusations and indeed many are threatening to sue Mr. Lazoya. And so what's been the reaction when he's he's come back and, and made these extraordinary claims? These claims really have stunned Mexican society. They are extremely salacious and they would be extremely embarrassing for the two main opposition parties in Mexico if they are proven to be true. And it's set off an entire round of wrangling over which parts of the of the deposition of Mr. Lazoya are credible, which ones look like they might be fabricated. And of course, the fact that this deposition was leaked from the Attorney General's office has led to accusations that this trial, which needs to be very serious, is in the process of being politicized. So you say that there are questions around the the credibility here. Are are there reasons to doubt what he's saying? Well, Mr. Lazoya's critics say that he is saying what he needs to say in order to escape jail time and in order to spare his family jail time. He has spent years denying these accusations and accusing other people of leveling allegations against him in exchange for reduced sentences. So the critics see him doing what he criticized others for doing. And of course, there are many who say that it's all a little bit too neat. We are talking about pretty much a laundry list of Mr. López Obrador's fiercest political opponents over the years in Mexico. Some people have already concluded that Mr. Lazoya is writing a kind of corruption fan fiction to satisfy the president. And so under all of these shadows of doubt, then, how is the investigation going to proceed? Well, Jason, this is the part where we really don't know what happens next. We can all agree that Mexicans deserve a very thorough probe into these allegations to get to the bottom of whether or not they are true. The problem is that the Attorney General's office does not have an excellent track record of delivering these kinds of investigations. And therefore, there's a very big chance that what is potentially the biggest corruption scandal in Mexican history is not met with a commensurately serious investigation. Of course, some people take the very fact that this deposition was leaked to the press as a sign that we are already in a place where the law has ended and politics and theater has begun. But but AMLO campaigned on on an anti-corruption message. Surely this is his moment to to, to take the reins and make sure that the justice is seen to be done. Well, you would think so, but this is sometimes a lot harder to do than it looks because prosecuting corruption in Mexico is fraught with danger because in a society where corruption is so pervasive, you can never be sure what's going to happen when you start following the guilty and seeing what they have to tell you. And the idea that your side will emerge from this unscathed is a fallacy very often. And as if this past week hasn't been dramatic enough, we received a taste of what that unpredictability looked like the day after these allegations came to surface. One local media outlet published a series of videos of Mr. López Obrador's brother 
taking money from a political operative in Chiapas, hundreds of thousands of pesos each time, seemingly uh, for use in the 2015 congressional campaigns by Mr. López Obrador's Morena Party. So the video seems to suggest the illegal use of campaign funds not being declared, not being transferred and transported in a recorded way and tarnishing the anti-corruption bona fides of this populist movement that currently is in charge of Mexico. Now, the president came out and said, this money is different because it's from the people. Y tengo mi conciencia tranquila. Por eso, soy capaz de enfrentar a la mafia de la corrupción de México. That claim may be difficult to verify. It may be impossible to verify. But one thing that it certainly is, is an example of how fraught the dangers can be when you start going really deep into corruption allegations in a country like Mexico. In some sense, you're suggesting that getting to the bottom of this might not actually be in AMLO's interest. Well, AMLO, who is a mastermind political tactician, has already received much of what he wants through the airing of these allegations. He has discredited and delegitimized his political opponents in the run-up to congressional election campaigns for next year. He has reinforced his populist narrative that his opponents are engaged in illegitimate scheming against him. And he achieves most of this without actually securing any kind of justice or, or deterrence against corruption in the future or a system to uphold the rule of law. So you can see why there are so many pessimists in Mexico right now saying that at a time when we should be getting to the, the truth of a very important and possibly very corrupt moment in Mexico's history, instead we are all going to be served up a dose of political theater. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. 2024 and though restitution has been debated for decades, people are taking increasingly direct action to get objects back to where they were made. Some of those people are museum curators who are leading the charge to get items out of their collections. Ever since the 1970s, museums have come under increasing pressure to return objects that were seized illegally or seized violently or just simply taken without permission. Fiametta Rocco is The Economist's culture correspondent. 
The museum's reaction has been very slow. They're very conservative organisations. They are, after all, in the business of conservation. Calls for this have always come from the countries where these objects were made, Australia, Greece, Africa. What we're seeing now is a new generation of curators who are advocates, activists, and the calls for restitution are coming from the inside, from this small group of curators who are coming towards the top of their institutions. What is it that's driving that change then? Why are curators uh, having this evident change of heart? So the real game changer was a report that President Emmanuel Macron of France commissioned at the end of 2017. For the first time, you had academics and curators calling for real change. They described it as a change in relational ethics, by which they meant there should be a much, much more egalitarian discussion between the countries that objects came from and the countries where these objects have ended up. And so where do these activist curators fit into the story? So this is a generation of curators who really started working in the early 2000s when the trend of world museums was at its height. These were the places where you could compare cultures from all over the world, where you could see objects that had universal connections. But within the argument in favour of world museums was a selfish attitude. What one museum director described to me as what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. This new generation of of curators who are now in their late 40s and early 50s and are coming to the top of their institutions have also been driven by what they've seen over the last five years. The roads must fall movement in South Africa and in Oxford and, of course, Black Lives Matter. And so what kinds of things are these curators actually doing? Well, one of the people is Dan Hicks, the Professor of World Archaeology at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. And there are about 500,000 objects in the Pitt Rivers. And he has been looking in great detail about where they come from. There's a big collection of Benin bronzes there, um, sculptures that were made over five or 600 years in West Africa. By the late 1800s, the king of Benin, who's known as the Oba, oversaw an empire that sold slaves and ivory and ebony in exchange for metal coinage, blades, guns, weaponry. Britain really wanted to seize control of this trade. And in 1897, a small party approaching the Benin capital was attacked and seven British delegates were killed. Now, the story is that the military skirmish that followed was done in response to this. But Hicks shows it happened so quickly. And what he's done is that he's used his archaeological tools to dig down through the primary sources and give us a sense of what really happened. It could only have been planned in advance. They raised the palace and the city, but not before they had packed up 5,000 objects, and they're now spread over more than 160 institutions, including the British Museum in London, which has the largest collection with about 900 pieces. And, and as for activist curators like Dr. Hicks and, and the, the unhappy histories that they're, they're pinpointing, 
Are they finding much resistance within the museums, the, these traditionally conservative institutions? So the response varies from institution to institution. The Pitt Rivers is quite far advanced, and they've been very important in pushing Oxford University to formulate a whole series of responses to what might happen if they get calls for restitution. The British Museum is taking quite a different tack. Their collections are inalienable, which means that they can't be given back. They can't be restituted. So the BM has taken the view that they would like to have much broader, much warmer sort of relationship with the authorities in Benin City that centres around making long-term loans. But they are not going to restitute. And given that kind of mixed bag of responses, how do you see this, the, the, this activism push progressing? Well, I think there's going to be progress on two fronts. I think in Europe and in America, we're going to see hearts and minds changing. There's a whole generation of young people for whom colonial violence is simply unacceptable and they cannot see any reason why objects that were taken violently or illegally can be kept in Western museums. There are going to be a number of programmes to help push this forward. George Soros's Open Society Foundations, for example, has pledged $15 million to help African organisations reclaim artefacts. Dr Hicks is getting a million dollars to establish a museum network called Action for Restitution to Africa. He's working with curators in Egypt, in Ghana and in South Africa. And I think we're going to be seeing more of that kind of thing. The other place where there's definitely going to be change is on the ground in Africa. If you take Nigeria, for example, in Benin City, where the bronzes originally were seized, there are plans for a new museum. It hasn't started yet but it will be built at some point in the next five to ten years. And that kind of centre is going to be the sort of place where the Benin bronzes can be sent back to. But the, the relationship between the people who look after African heritage, be they in Western museums or in African museums, has to change. There has to be much closer dialogue, but the, the attitude that what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it, what's yours is mine and I'm also going to keep it, that's not going to work anymore. Pimetta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. For more analysis like this, from arts and culture to virus science to the forces shaping global politics, subscribe to The Economist. Find the best introductory offer wherever you are at economist.com slash intelligence offer. President Donald Trump has long accused social media platforms of trying to silence conservative voices. But is that really happening? At this point, every social media network uses an algorithm to feed content to users. And if an algorithm that serves all these users' content has certain biases, that could be very powerful. Sandra Solstad is a data journalist at The Economist. Now, there is this claim that Twitter silences conservative voices that these algorithms favor left content. Uh, now, I wanted to figure out if that was true. Um, so what I did was I made a clone of Donald Trump's Twitter account, and then I had that clone just tweet whatever he tweeted, and then I saw what the algorithm served the clone. So tell me more about the clone. How exactly did this clone Trump Twitter account work? So what I did was to 
create a new account. I then uploaded Donald Trump's Twitter profile picture, had the same bio, and then followed all the people that he follows. What I then did was that I just sent out a bunch of his old tweets in order. That was a way for me to make the algorithm learn what kind of user this was. And then from September to December last year, every 10 minutes, a program that I created did the following. It first checked if Donald Trump had tweeted something. And then if it did, uh, three things happened. First, the clone tweeted the same thing. Second, I checked the clone's Twitter feed and recorded the first 24 tweets that was there. So those would be the tweets served by the algorithm to this Trump clone. I also recorded the 24 most recent tweets by the people that Trump follows. So this would be the content that he would have seen if there was no algorithm. The idea here is essentially to see what Donald Trump would see, has presumably seen thanks to the algorithm, and what he would have gotten had he only been given what came in in order, in time, based on the people that he follows. Yes, that is correct. And so what differences did you see between the, the sort of straight chronological and the algorithmically delivered? Well, so first I found that the content was very different. About half of the tweets that the Trump clone was served were actually from people that Trump doesn't even follow. So this was content that the algorithm somehow had tracked down and, and thought that uh, this Trump clone would find relevant. Secondly, I found, contrary to what many have claimed over the past few years, that it did not look like conservative views, or you could say views on the right, were being suppressed. On the contrary, I found a ton of right-wing content. Uh, another thing that I found was that the curated tweets were way more emotive. Terms associated with anger or with fear or surprise, they were all present at much higher rates in these curated tweets. So it seems like the algorithm has figured out that we humans respond to emotional content. And that is what it decides to show at a, a greater rate than what you would get without an algorithm. And what, in turn, does that tell you about Twitter's claims to be suppressing extreme content to, to limit misinformation and so on? It might have smart ways to filter out uh, extreme content or, or fake news. But in reality, the net effect, so the comparison between a chronological feed where there's no algorithm and the algorithmic feed, shows that the algorithmic feed has way more fake news and extreme content. So just to give one example, there are these uh, researchers who have classified websites as being fake news, and we found links to these websites to be present at twice the rate in the curated feed compared to just a straight-up chronological feed. So it seems like Twitter might be trying to limit fake news in smart ways, but it is also boosting these fake news through the algorithm. And the boosting way outweighs whatever they do to try to limit the spread of misinformation. Thanks very much for your time, Sandra. Thank you for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. We're 
world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.